Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. For this episode of Making Media, we spoke with Hitin Samtani, SVP of content at The Real Deal. Now, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but real estate media is everywhere. And to me, The Real Deal sits uniquely at the epicenter of this industry. They are the largest real estate-focused publication in the U.S. They have over 3 million monthly visitors to their website, tens of thousands of paying subscribers, and they still maintain a print distribution publication of over 150,000 subscribers. And maybe what's most interesting to me is that The Real Deal was ranked as the publication with the wealthiest audience on the web. As head of content, Hiten has experience with deep dive journalism and various forms of media across written word, video, audio. So he has a full background across media. I think there are a ton of lessons for media professionals across this conversation. Please enjoy. All right, Hiten. I am excited for this one. We love learning about other segments of media and real estate media feels like it's taken over the world in the 21st century, whether I'm on social media, business publications, even reality television, it's everywhere. Real estate is everywhere. As someone who pursued journalism, was real estate the market that you sought out? I didn't even shave when I went for the interview. I was so like, this is such a peripheral beat. I remember when I was in J school at Columbia, I had messed up on an assignment. I'd blown a deadline. And my professor said, if you do that again, you'll be remanded to the real estate section. There's this connotation with real estate that it's something that goes in the back pages. So I went into this gig knowing that I probably like Dom needed to stay in the US somehow or the other. So I went in, I did the interview, I started to get a sense of the publication, but I was very lucky that when I started at The Real Deal, I got it right away. I got why it is the epicenter of money, power, drama. It is high stakes poker at a level that even Wall Street can't compare because Wall Street is still public markets. Real estate is private, unregulated markets, and that leads to incredible narratives. It's just a different level. You tapped into the narrative right there. Can you talk a little bit about the real deals history? Because I trace it back and see it started in the early 2000s. It certainly feels like that's when real estate media really started to take off. What's the backstory to the publication? We'll start with the backstory of the publication. So Amir Karangi was the founder and still the publisher. In 2003, he had started a couple of community-based newspapers in New Mexico. There was one called The Free Press, and there was another called The Gringo Gazette, which was a very catchy name. He's always had a good thing going with names. So he came back. He was in New York. He'd been working at Yahoo for some time. I believe he got laid off or he left. He had bought a couple of brownstones by then and he flipped the brownstones and made a decent chunk of change on the side. And he realized he's like, there's nothing really out there for people like me, investors who are trying to understand this as a market. And sadly, still even today, with some exceptions, real estate has been approached in one of three ways. Either the press, the media in real estate is this kiss-assy plot. It's a piece about you is supposed to end up on someone's wall and it's a conduit to advertising. Or it's approached as kind of a lifestyle beat, a consumer beat, lifestyles of the rich and famous, the way that maybe the Wall Street Journal mansion approaches it. Or the third one, and this is better journalism, but it's approached as IRR and MOIC and return on capital and ROI and very dry press release kind of language. Those are the three types of real estate media that existed before The Real Deal. Now, I think The Real Deal's big unlock, and this happened well before I got there, was 
Real estate is a blood sport. This is high stakes, skyline shaping, narrative, gladiatorial drama. This doesn't happen in any other beat where the people, the characters are so involved in the shaping of the cities that you and I live in. And I think the real estate got that right away. Now, the approach was quite raw. And there were a lot of English majors writing about very complex topics at the time. So it didn't look the way it does now. But the DNA was always there, that this is a character-driven succession meets billions kind of situation. And if we cover it like that, we might have something. Why do you think that was? As you say, it has all the right characteristics for really interesting, compelling media narratives that are deep dive journalism, but it just didn't exist. I always think it doesn't exist now either, aside from kind of what you guys are doing. It's really hard when you are starting in a new beat or a new outlet catering to a certain audience, and they're used to things a certain way. I think these are very powerful, very wealthy, very litigious people, and they want their statement out in 12-point font, four paragraphs of nonsense. That is just the way that they do things. So to break that took kind of a mix of being an outsider, and Amir was not part of the mix at all. A lot of the publications have been indirectly funded or directly funded by real estate players. The Commercial Observer, notably, is owned or was owned by the Kushner family. Jared Kushner, Charlie Kushner, et cetera. So there was a lot of incestuous play between the media and the operators. And I think Amir being an outsider really helped. The other part of it was it just took a lot of guts and cojones to get over the fact when you're getting called as a 30-something-year-old saying, I'm going to make sure that you can't live in this town or you can't eat in this town, which happened to him multiple times, you've got to build up to it. So I think that's part of it. It's also quite hard to sustain the level of excitement and drama around a product, as you guys know, you're scaling something yourselves. It's hard to get through that first recession, that first print publication run, updating the website. Those are all milestones that take a lot of blind luck too. I guess we got a bit lucky, but we had the stones to get through the fight. When you're a newcomer into an industry, the people, the incumbents tend to not want you involved in that market, especially if you're going to dig a little bit deeper than how People have done it previously. Were there major inflection points or milestones or challenges along the way that ended up having a big impact and making this from a concept into something that was an ongoing business? Yeah, there were a couple of existential challenges. So at first, I believe that when Amir started out, he had enough money for four issues. So four monthly issues of the magazine. And at the time, we didn't have any advertisers. So he put in these dummy ads. So we had a page from IBM, a page from JP Morgan. They clearly didn't know who we were. They just put these ads in to give it this impression of legitimacy. And you just kind of do, and this is before my time, and I'm jealous because this is the kind of stuff that becomes myth if you make it. If you don't make it, it looks really, really bad. Started off that way. He had enough money. And I think by the third issue, we started getting some traction. What had happened was we had written a piece on Donald Trump and we had written a piece about how real estate developers don't really consider him part of the peer set. He's always been more of a showman than a developer. In the 80s and 90s, he was a developer, but he's faded away. A few weeks later, Stuart Elliott, who's our editor-in-chief and CEO and wrote that story, got a Sharpie-covered issue of The Real Deal back and it said, why so angry, Elliott? And that was from Donald Trump. So we parlayed that into an interview with Trump, and that put us on the map. And that was enough name recognition to get the next person and the next person. So that was one of the big things, those four issues. And that was kind of our pilot season. Another big thing happened also in 2003, 2004, when I'm sure you guys are familiar with Bruce Wasserstein, corporate raider, legendary, scary man. And he came after The Real Deal because he had a publication called The Deal. The Real Deal had nothing to do with that. But he came after us, sued us for our copyright infringement. And that battle took us to the mat. Amir didn't have any money for really legal challenges. I think he was dating a girl at the time who was a lawyer and she was helping him out. And we prevailed in that battle. And I think the judge shut that case down. And I think that was the point where, okay, we can make it. If we've seen off Bruce Wasserstein, there might be something here. So those are the two big ones. We went through the recession. We were very lucky. We didn't lay off any people in the recession. We had to keep costs. I mean, we were in a roach-filled office and very, very bare bones, but we were able to keep the publication going. In fact, and this is something we can probably talk about later, journalistically, the tough times get you just way more credibility and way better stories. So 2008, 2009, 2010 is some of our most defining work. 
And then can you bring us up to today and just give a very brief overview of the business as it stands, your readership, what the real deal looks and feels like today, and then we can get into some questions around that. We're the largest real estate-focused publication in the US. I think we have more than 3.2 million monthly visitors. We have tens of millions of page views a month. Our social channels, I think, are about 700,000 people. So we've got scale and we've got tens of thousands of paid subscribers as well. And that number is growing maybe between 25 and 30% year over year. So that's been an impressive, big avenue of growth for us. It also is really validating to have that because it insulates us somewhat from the market's ups and downs. And it tells us that, hey, you're putting on something valuable so you can invest in the journalism behind it. That's a really important thing. And I think Sean Griffey had such an interesting point about how he thinks about new markets, which was like, is there enough of an advertiser base? We have never taken that approach. We've always been like, is there enough of a narrative font for us to expand? And then hopefully everything will follow from that. And apart from maybe one or two experiments that has borne out for us. We've got both scale and we've got that insider feel. I guess the best way to illustrate that, you know, you talk to other journalists and be like, what's your career highlight or what kind of accolades really stand out to you? And most of them will talk about awards maybe, or they'll talk about a story that they cover the hell out of, et cetera. And that's certainly valid. And we've gone through that as well. But for me, I went into a real estate private equity holiday party. And it was, this is in the boom times. And this is top of the standard, going all out. And we go up there and you can kind of tell you're working the crowd and you kind of see when there's someone who's never been there before, shiny eyes, looking to schmooze. Let's go and see this. And there are these two gentlemen, probably in their early 30s, who are clearly there for the first time. And they're looking around starry-eyed and they say, wow, I feel like I'm in the pages of the real deal. And that to me epitomizes the brand. When you're in the mix, when your brand stands for the market in that way, that's a big deal. That to me, it was like, wow, we have something special here. It's not just the product. It really is the way that people wake up to this industry and the way that people go to bed with this industry. So that's been really good. Another big one, and we can talk about the characters because I think they're fascinating. There is a Hasidic developer called Yoel Goldman, very big. And if you know anything about New York real estate, you know that the Hasidic sect is a big player in the multifamily market. And I haven't met him, but I was talking to some people who raise money in Israel through the Israeli bond market for developers. And I was just shooting the shit with them and talking about the business. And they said, oh, we met Yoel Goldman recently. I said, I've been trying to get an interview with him for a while. And they said that he told us that his career ambition is to retire before his name is ever mentioned in the real deal. Just <laughs> two opposite sides of it, but really bring it home as to what this publication is. Yeah, let's show your aspirations of getting him on. But that's something for us to aspire to. And then in your position today as editorial director, as I understand it, what metrics are you most watching? You said you've got a huge audience. I'm sure they're quite a disparate audience as well. What are you looking for day to day, week to week in terms of tracking the business on your side of it? And then how do you stay close to such a big audience in terms of understanding what they want or what you can deliver for them? My title is SVP of content. So I'm the head of content for The Real Deal. The things that I think about most are subscription growth, but I don't worry about it from week to week because you never know what's happening. You have some great stories out there and eventually it'll catch up. I think about it in terms of monthly subscriber growth. I also think about it, Chartbeat has gotten a lot better in giving you engaged minutes on the site. And that's something I think about a lot. I think one of your assignment Owens, it was talked about this dog shit traffic that you get on a hard story. And that's the same. We don't really care about that. It's nice. We can use that momentum to put out stuff. But what I most care about is subscriber growth and engaged minutes. And then this less tangible, but are we capturing the industry in the right way? Do we have the zeitgeist? Are we in the mix? And this is the way I understand this is when readers write to me or send me DMs on Twitter or are engaging and like, you're killing it, you're getting it, or you completely missed the story. That's really important too, because that tells us, hey, we care about you enough to tell you that you're screwing up here. So. Those are the things I think about the most. We've gotten a lot better about packaging our journalism. So you guys have probably been following this whole bank meltdown. Signature Bank is one of the big ones. We're covering that story from every angle, what it means for lenders, what it means for other banks, what it means for real estate players, and what it means for Signature Bank themselves. It's kind of a Goodfellas type bank. If you remember the quote, they were just blue collar guys busting their ass to get the little extras. That's what it feels like. So 
trying to capture the cultural, financial, and real estate aspects of everything. That's what I think about most. You tapped into something there just in terms of the zeitgeist, capturing the moment, being in the conversation of the people that you want to really be reaching. We have this issue sometimes with episodes that maybe don't get the biggest numbers, but we know that they're being discussed in big circles. And we feel like that's an ideal thing because it has a ripple effect and we know that has an impact, but it's very tough to measure. Have you found anything that helps you measure that or helps you capture that really intangible dynamic that you talked about? I believe the best way to get it from a metric standpoint would be open rates on emails. So open rates on emails is a great way to understand because if you're signed up, you're kind of bought into the brand already. We will often have really high open rates on our special reports between 30 and 40% open rates sometimes. So that tells you there's a high level of engagement there. And on the other side of it, I wish I could crack because I would devote 90% of our editorial resources to that stuff. And part of what I have to do in my job is I have to just be out there with readers all the time to understand that I'm on the right track. That's the exhausting part. And then I have to come back and kind of walk the newsroom through that. One of the biggest problems in our business is that journalists often write for other journalists. That is kind of the big problem. They'll use words like mulls, which is not a word that shouldn't be a word in English anymore. They bring their own political views to it. And they're also thinking about, will this win me an award? Will a writer at the FT notice this work? Will a writer at the New York Times cite my work? Which is fine. And there's room for that. I don't care about it very much. I'm much more, are my readers being served by what I have? A good example of this is, do you remember the story about Trump and the whole Trump paid $750 in federal income tax? Yes. Bombshell New York Times story, front page, as it should be covered the hell out of by the TV networks and all over. It was picked up so many places. And a lot of publications just parroted that coverage. And look, he was the sitting president at the time. Americans deserve to know what he paid or didn't pay in taxes. But for us, and readers reached out as soon as it dropped, they're like, we hate Trump. We don't even like Trump. This is a reader telling me. But he's a genius in this way, because all he's using is depreciation and bonus depreciation in the way that we would aspire to use it. So when we did our story, it was much more about Trump, the master of bonus depreciation and how he went about it. It's much more focused on our readers. And maybe that story doesn't get the Atlantic going, aha, but I don't care. Yeah, don't hate the player, hate the game and understand the game and what's happening within it. When you mention you need to be out there with the readers, what does that actually look like? Are those events, dinners? Is there something else that you're doing just to make sure that you're in the conversation, in the mix? My job's got a little bit easier with that over time because of Twitter. I give Twitter a lot of credit here where I could liaise with people across markets. I live in LA now. The bulk of our editorial operation is still East Coast, though we've expanded into Texas and San Francisco and Los Angeles. So I spend a lot of time on Twitter talking with people in the mix. I kind of get a sense of not only what they're up to, but this is really important, how they communicate. And I think, Matt, I've seen you lurking here and there on real estate Twitter It's got a certain patois that if you're not into, you can't really make the most use of it. So I spent quite a bit of time last year understanding how they operate. I'm very direct in my approach. I've never kissed ass. I'm not interested in that. But I'm also not there to judge how they do their thing. I'm just fascinated by it. So that was a great conduit for me to broaden my reach a little bit. But then, yeah, I mean, it's the standard real estate is a schmooze fest. There's a lot of dinners. There's a lot of events, there's a lot of speaking engagements, there's a lot of moderating. And I use that and then you have to build momentum off that. It is very much a phone industry. And I think one of the challenges we've had is some of our younger reporters are email reporters. And real estate doesn't work like that. You have to work the phones. I used to have a landline. I miss having my neck a little sore at the end of the day because that meant I was working the phones, putting in 20, 30 calls a day. That's a little bit hard to do now, but that's a big part of it as well. I'm down in the beer garden at the Standard while you guys are up at the top enjoying. I lurk, but I'm many, many floors away from ever being in the mix there. Going back to one of the things you mentioned earlier, newsletter, click-through rate, your website is still a destination. It's captured as one of the top websites out there. And I think that's increasingly rare. Back in the day, it used to be you might pull up ESPN.com, but I think it's increasingly uncommon for people to end up on websites just by direct funnel by typing in the address. So how has that changed for you as a business? And has that changed the strategy significantly just in terms of 
how you're marketing what you're doing and just the different distribution forms that you're using. This is a good time to talk about it. And you've probably seen some of my tweets. We just transitioned to a new unified website, which has been hell and a half to put together. But what it hopefully will allow us to do is package stories and bring in weave-in threads from Los Angeles into our New York coverage, etc. So it gives you what used to be your A-head or A-1 or above the fold. We're able to exercise some of that again, which has been really nice to see. Google search is still responsible for about half our traffic. Social has been bringing in more and more. And Instagram, we can talk about this, has become its own channel. It's not even leading back to the site. It's become its own channel with its own revenue sources and sponsored content and branded posts and all of that. But the website itself is, as you mentioned, still the homepage for a lot of industry professionals. They wake up, they're refreshing it all the time. I have never had more inbound than when we put up a paywall. We're talking about multi-multi-millionaires. Hit 10. Come on, man. Can you just get me a food? It's gratifying. But the website really does still matter for us. And I think it is up to us. We need to figure out how to make it more of an attractive destination, how to embed videos more. That's going to be a big part of our playbook as well. I've been really pushing out the video stuff. We've hired a dedicated, very talented person to work on video. And at some point, we need the real deal to become all right, you're a real estate professional. This is the 2.0 or maybe the 5.0 version. Matt Russell comes in. He's a commercial real estate broker. I have your profile. I'm going to feed you the most directly relevant news to you. I'm also going to show you kind of a transaction map of the stuff that's happening in your market. And then ideally, I'm going to also have some kind of virtual Rolodex. That would be where we want to get to. We're very far from that. One of our biggest points of improvement is our narrative and reporting expertise and our interactive and digital expertise, the gap is too wide right now. And I would kill to have Bloomberg's interactive team. We could do so much with that given our knowledge, but that's a manpower thing. It's a lot of money and time. So we're not there yet. Before I ask about the paywall, given the recent experience you've had with those web changes, as you say, see on Twitter, fighting some fires there. What have you learned from that experience going into it and coming out of it? Someone said, hey, we want to change the website again in six months time. What would you think now as you did six months ago? There is going to be a subset of people who are unhappy with any change, whether it's visual or presentation of information, etc. That you just have to get used to and you have to develop a bit of a thick skin around angry emails about that. Oh, the site looks like it was designed by a child. Okay. I'm not perfect at it. I've certainly told people, hey, mate, you could do better. Please help me out. But you've just got to put those people away. But I think There is no quick and painless way to do it because when you have the kind of traffic we have, migrating traffic over is just going to be a development nightmare. I think what we needed to do a better job of is communicate to readers what was changing, when it was changing, what we're looking at, which is why I took to Twitter. There was no way for us to tell readers, hey, we understand that your paywall login isn't working. We understand that you are a subscriber, but you're getting 404s every half minute. I had to take to Twitter and it's kind of a guerrilla way to do this. I was getting a lot of anger and frustration from our readers, which I appreciated. It's better than apathy, but that's something we would probably figure out. And then our dev team is in New York, Houston, and the Ukraine. (laughs) Just cobbling that stuff together wasn't easy. I wish there was a good answer because we're not out of the woods yet. We still have a couple of weeks to go before I feel comfortable where the site's at. I think about the similar challenge you talked about needing to use Twitter. Sometimes with our podcast feeds, it's like we go to Twitter to talk to people, but actually it'd be more effective if we talk to people through the podcast feed because that's where they're subscribed to. And then going back to the paywall, how would you describe your business model? I'm intrigued by how you think about it internally, because when I go to the site, as a reader, I see ads, subscription, events, brand studio, it's what looks like the beginnings of maybe a professional tier. But internally, how do you guys think about it? Advertising was kind of our traditional bread and butter for the longest time. That was the way we thought about it. So it became a traffic play, but we were also very cognizant of the fact that we want to stay insidery. Adding the paywall, which I think we instituted in 2018, allowed us to achieve that balance. And I think there are some publications, and I give them great credit at the information being probably the top of mind, that can say, we don't need to do any of this because we only cover this. But because we're also a scale shop, we can't ignore advertising. And in fact, Advertising has let us get into certain things that we wouldn't be able to do. Our Miami event now is kind of a rock concert. I hope you guys get a chance to come. But 
4,000 people we were supposed to have Pharrell last time. I interviewed Venus Williams on stage. It's taken on a life of its own. So the way I think about our revenue channels are subscription, advertising, which includes some programmatic, but not really a major part of it. Events has been a big one for us. We don't have a machine around events yet. We have four to five events a year. I think it would be incredible if we were able to figure that out to the point where we're having a consistent stream of events coming through in each market. And then we've got this thing called Brand Studio that you alluded to, which is our custom content engine. And I don't have anything to do with this, but you can either submit content that we then publish on our channels, or you could have a dedicated team of sponsored content writers within Brand Studio that we work with. And on the event side, there is one new channel that's been getting a lot of traction, which is these branded events. So these are not TRD events, the way that editorially programmed events that are flagship events, but we'll have a client, let's say a Gaganau. And what they'll do with us is they will use our brand and our distribution. We'll bring in a bunch of VIPs and we'll have this beautiful dinner in some historic building with their ranges and their fridges and all of that going all out, double Michelin star dinner. And it's kind of a brand association play there. And that's been interesting. And that's been growing tremendously on the sales side as well. I think the subscription thing will continue to be a big part of it. I am waiting for this next part that I mentioned to Matt, which is I don't need to go anywhere else for real estate news. And not only do I not need to go anywhere else, this website or this publication understands intimately what I need. And I would love for us to get there because that gives us total freedom. You mentioned there's not too much on the programmatic side of the advertising equation. So there is a sponsorship sales team and ad sales team that sits inside the business. How much separation is there between church and state here? So for the real deal, it's zero. There is no influence from the sales side to the editorial side whatsoever. And that means that you could have ostensibly a magazine or an issue where you have a back cover ad by Matt Russell, and you can have a profile that takes a very, very, very hard look at Matt Russell's debt problems. That has happened and that will continue to happen. That's really important for us because, again, it's not even us being heroes. This is just good business. If people know that the TRD brand is not for sale, they respect us a lot more. And everyone says this, but we actually take this on. You will never find an instance where a salesperson has any influence over what we cover, how we cover, etc. And then in terms of the interaction between the two sides, what I do provide, and I think it's just smart business, and it's also better for our brand, is I kind of walk the marketing team through the broad themes that we're looking at. And that doesn't mean, hey, we're going to write about Matt next week. Not at all. It's more like, okay, guys, I think one of the big editorial topics for us, just given everything that's happening in the world right now, is going to be commercial real estate distress or is going to be office to residential conversions. And that's important for you to know as a salesperson, because then you can craft your pitches around that. You should also be aware, we make sure I've written a 12-page dossier that every salesperson gets, and that's who we are, who we stand for. Here's some of our best work. Here's how we approach our journalism, et cetera. And that just makes them better at their job. The way that I think about it is it's much more one way, hey, this is what's the broader universe that we're looking at, and these are the ways that we might look at it. But it never goes beyond that. And that's just good business for us. Another fascinating development I've seen from you guys is developing your IP from stories that you've written. You wrote a book last year called The Kings of New York, I think. Can you explain the thinking process behind that strategy of just developing IP more broadly around the stories that you've put out in the past? The New Kings of New York is a book that we put out and we got a great reception from it. And I think we were very gratified as to the interest from the industry. We self-published, which was a maniacal decision to me. I do not recommend it to anyone. It gave us a lot of control, gave us a lot of insight, but it also was a logistical clusterfuck. It was really, really difficult. But where we are at now is we've realized that we have 20 years of incredible content on people who've shaped cities in many, many different ways. People who've bankrolled cities, who've bankrupted cities, who've developed them, etc. And we have stories that if we just had the direct connections to a Netflix or to an Amazon Prime, etc., these are the kind of stories that are just no-brainers. I'll give you an example. There's a developer called Harry Macklow, 432 Park Avenue, that Matt Stick Tower on 57th Street. He had been stashing his lover, his mistress, in one of his new development projects for two years. He was doing a condo conversion and he had his mistress in that project in one of the apartments. 
please find me a story in succession or billions that matches that level of drama, chicanery, just craziness. You don't have that. And we have an entire repertoire of these stories. One of the things that I think smaller newsrooms don't think about is that you have this insider access. How do you parlay that the way that Vox did with, frankly, lesser stories? They found a way to get into Netflix, et cetera. And we need to figure out that. So part of my job is thinking about the IP. We have this book now. We're thinking about ways to make scripted, non-scripted fiction stuff from it. And also, when we're doing our day-to-day reporting, I have to think about, oh, this actually might be a good nugget for a pilot someday, or this could be a documentary, or this could be a podcast. Very early stages for us, but Washington Post had a great, I think, IP play. I forget who they tied up with, but that's been a big revenue source for them. Vox was kind of the original example. And given the narrative richness in our beat, I think there's a lot of room there. We have some friends on the podcast side, more in the narrative category. And there was a stretch of time where when they launched a new show, the way that that became high ROI was a Netflix series development. And I think it was really the only way that it hit the black, which makes it kind of crazy in terms of launching a project without that ability to know if that's going to be the end outcome. This is definitely a moonshot for us in the sense that maybe one out of 20 things get picked up. And even if that's the way it works out and might be a long tail, right? We might not see real money from it for a couple of years or many years, but it's worth trying. And it also, when you're in a position for long enough and Stuart Elliott, the editor-in-chief and I are kind of working on this IP stuff together, you need new challenges within it. Otherwise, you're moving through cycles and getting good stories, et cetera. But to keep us energized selfishly, it's also important that we have something like that. Yeah, I know you had done some television series or some features back maybe 10, 15 years ago. We produced a documentary a couple of times. We also were trying to produce a documentary on baldness. Amir has weird ideas sometimes. <laughs> That didn't really go anywhere, but we did a story on one of the most prolific architects in New York, and we had published that, I think, with PBS, but we haven't done too much of that. And I assume that was not necessarily a majorly profitable exercise. That's putting it very kindly. I think we are cognizant, and I think one of the things I love about The Real Deal is we will often do things as pilot tests or branding exercises, etc. But we kind of pull the plug on them if they're not either gaining enough traction or sunsetting stuff. During the pandemic, everyone was bored. Everyone was starting an interview series. I did the same thing. Through our network, I was able to sit down with top VCs and developers and just talk about the changing landscape of the industry. A lot of people watched that show. A lot of people responded. And maybe last year, I realized it's just not relevant anymore. So I need to figure out a new way to do this. So now we've been doing these three minutes or less breakdowns of very complex topics in real estate from decarbonization to sustainability to smart buildings, etc. And that's been taking off. We try a few things here and there. I want to get into the art of journalism a bit. As you mentioned, you have the background, Big J, journalism school. You need connections to write the stories, but you're also writing real stories. They're not puff pieces. There are some pretty critical things that come out of these. What's your approach to all of that where you manage to both keep the relationships while these people also know that that might happen to them in the future. The only rule that I think helps you get through the times when you write a very tough story about someone you might be very familiar with and you might know their kids, etc., is the no snark rule. If you're snarky, if they feel like you're taking delight in whatever they're going through, that damages the relationship. And I think a lot of, you know, Gawker can do that. But Gawker doesn't have to go and have lunch with these people the next day. We do. So we will approach journalism. If there is something interesting and important, whether it's good, bad, ugly, or somewhere in between, we will do it. But we try to keep our judgment out of it. And just the demographics of journalism, young, typically very left-leaning, whereas our beat is generally older, more conservative. There is a clash that happens there. And part of what we have to do is kind of editorial leadership is stress that the framing needs to be fair. You can go really hard and you can have a lot of voice and you can have a lot of texture and color in the way you talk about these characters, but don't be an asshole. That's kind of where we go. So that helps us preserve the relationship. And then we always, I mean, we're dealing with very litigious people and the kind of calls, maybe you shouldn't talk about that here, but 
we do get a lot of very intimidating calls. We've had reporters in tears in the newsroom. We've had to go and sit down with people and say, hey, that wasn't cool, back off, etc. We always bring a lot of research and reporting depth to kind of buttress whatever we say. If I'm writing about a developer and I'm saying that's a house of cards, I better have a lot of backup to that. And by that, I mean proof of foreclosures and lawsuits and banks calling in loans and hearing from sources that this is not working out and capital calls and things like that. So when we do that, we typically, A, fend off any legal battles that we might have, but B, there is a cooling off period. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to say we're going to publish a story and the next week we're having lunch with a person. But the next year we are having lunch with a person. We had done a story about fuzzy math in the condo market. And this is quite important. Condos are securities. There are certain milestones that you hit. And condos are securities. And most people don't think about this because the enforcement is trash in New York, at least. There are certain milestones that you hit, which funds get released and you get certificates of occupancy, et cetera. We had found out that a lot of brokers and developers were fudging those numbers. And we put out the story, incredibly damaging story to the people involved. Two years, didn't return our calls, et cetera, et cetera wiped any mentions of us off their profiles. And generally, the real deal is kind of a, if you're ranked or mentioned by the real deal, it kind of goes into whatever marketing materials you have wiped out. But two years later, they came back and they're like, you were right, we were wrong. So that helps a lot. We've certainly damaged relationships, but I think the no snark rule helps us at least resurrect some of them. I can only imagine with the litigious nature of that market, what you have to deal with on the other side of it. We're talking about developers who will secretly fund lawsuits by a community group because five years ago, this actually happened between Douglas Durst and Barry Diller, who you guys will be very familiar with. Barry Diller was trying to do that floating park, which he eventually ended up doing. And the lawsuit to block it was funded by some community group, but it was actually funded by the skyscraper king, Douglas Durst. And it was like, you have lawsuits that are pure vendettas and you have buildings that are blocking views purely to fuck with the other person. So you can imagine how that translates when we write about this stuff. It's incredible. How do you actually go about finding the stories? I'm sure it's changed over the years, but what percentage of stories are you being tipped on versus just being out there? And I'm sure it's a gray area in terms of what represents one versus the other. But how long did it take for you to start being really in the mix and in the conversation in the market? Me personally or the publication? You personally. The first story that I wrote that I felt I've done something, because you write a lot of stories and you feel maybe good about them, but you kind of know in your heart that you're not there. I think about nine months into the real deal, I wrote one story about Hudson Yards and the financing for Hudson Yards. And they use this very intricate condomizing structure. They sold KKR, piece, et cetera. And I was in the boardrooms and getting color, et cetera. When I put that piece out, it's the first time I felt, okay, I have something here. It's not quite there and the language is still childish and there's still this aura of, it's not quite there, but I have something here. So I was very lucky, as I mentioned. I took to the beat quite quickly. I fell in love with it. I saw that real estate in the cities that we cover it is kind of your perfect sideways lens to view money and power. And once you understand that at your core, it all flows from that. In terms of your question, a lot of our stuff, we're very lucky because there's a lot of property records, there's lawsuits. So you have Supreme Court records, state records, et cetera. You have deeds and financing documents, et cetera. That helps you if you're a new reporter at The Real Deal, that at least gives you kind of a steady flow of stories. And then there are tips, there are sources. And then unlike a lot of other publications that are much more like writers go forth and find interesting stories, we understand that real estate is a very, there's a lot of gravity to this beat and you need to make sure you're covering the right stuff and you need not to be distracted by nonsense or trend stories, et cetera. We do a lot of top-down assignments as well. About half of our stories are assigned by us, which is quite unusually high for a publication of our size. We do give our writers a lot of room with voice and like, hey, tell us what you see. Tell us how you feel about the story in the story. But the framing is very, very important. And what we cover is very important. Part of the reason that we've struggled, and if you look at our newsroom ranks, you won't see too many stalwarts from Bloomberg and the AP, et cetera, in there. You know, those 30-year journalists who have the sandwich from New Jersey and they come in and they go back. We don't have too many of those. No digs on New Jersey, by the way. Lots of love for New Jersey. But 
We don't really have too many of those because when we've had them, what we've struggled with is they don't understand that what a real estate story looks like at a paper is very different than what it looks like at the real deal. So the assignments are often without any weight. We've had a lot more luck and very gratifying to see developing talent from within the ranks. I came in as what's known as a web producer. So I was basically the morning rewrite guy. We've had a lot of other people who've come in as reporters, gotten very hungry, seen something happen, and then either go up with us or go on to a lot of bigger publications as well. When you bring that young talent through, what are the first few weeks or months that you're trying to ingrain in them? What are you telling them to read? What are you telling them to study? How are you trying to get their mentality into the right way of thinking that you want them to think? It's really hard, Dom. It's not an easy challenge because they come in with their own perceptions of what the beat looks like. And then there's so much inbound. When you have a new reporter, everyone's trying to take them to lunch. Everyone's calling them, either threatening them or cajoling them into something. So a lot of it is defense, to be honest. So a lot of it is keep your head down, insulate from all the stuff you're reading and seeing, and just work on these assignments. We've gotten a lot better about when I came in, whoever the manager is, is not important, but I had to find my own desk, clean my own laptop, and go around, introduce myself in the newsroom. Hi, I'm Hintan. I'm a new guy, and I'm here to learn about the beat. Luckily, I don't mind jabbering, so it was fine. But now we've gotten a lot better about onboarding with the set of things that we think are essential stories. We have morning editorial meetings where we drum out the top stories of the day, and then we sit down, do regular check-ins with our reporters and editors. I would say the learning curve is still six months. It's still six months before you really have a sense of what's going on. That's where it's at. You see a lot of people take initiative in terms of, you have license to write about everything. We've written about Ponzi schemes and sports because Tate George, I believe is his name. We've written a 4,000 word piece about a basketball player who got embroiled in this real estate Ponzi scheme. As long as you have real estate somewhere in there, the real deal gives you license to write about a lot of different things. That's how we go about it, but it's not easy. If you look at real estate this way, we look at real estate this way. We're behind the scenes. We're looking at who's moving the strings. And shifting the lens is probably the most challenging part of it for us when we get a new person in. Journalism's a lot different than it was 30 years ago, mostly through the lens of technology. And as you mentioned, what Twitter allows you to do. What do you think the most important trait is now for someone who's young and entering journalism? We can't ignore the economic aspects of journalism. It is not a lucrative career for most people. You can make it and you can do very well, but it is really hard and discouraging for a lot of journalists who might pay God knows how much for grad school and then come in at salaries that wouldn't let you live in the city that you cover. That is something we have to think about quite a bit. So if you're okay with that, somehow you're okay with that and you're able to stick it out for a couple of years. I was just thinking, I got to stay in the US. I've got to figure out a way to stay in the US. I don't care what I make in the beginning. If you can get over the economic hurdle, which is a very real one and not something that people should ignore, I think people come into journalism and think, oh, that's a future problem. But for a lot of people, that problem doesn't go away. That's something to think about. When I talk to people who are looking at pursuing journalism, I do get very real with them about the fact that you may not make significant money for a long, long time. But beyond that, let's put that aside. You have to be fascinated. You have to be deeply, insanely interested in the people and the companies and the topics you cover. Otherwise, you're going to get beat by someone else who is. That's really it. And I think that applies to any business. But in journalism, you're often sitting across the table from someone who makes a hundred times more than you, a thousand times more than you. They make more in a day than you would in five years. That can happen. These are people that you may not, unless you respect what they bring to the table, you may think they're not your intellectual equal or they're not as well-read as you, or not as articulate as you, but they figured out something. And if you are able to have that intellectual humility and say, all right, I might've gone to these fancy schools and write in a way like this, but this person has something going on, then you have a shot. But that is really important. You have to be deeply fascinated. So part of what I think has allowed a lot of people to thrive at The Real Deal is they've got that. It's like writing about the robber barons of the 1920s, or writing about the East India Company and the Brits who went to India and pillaged the land and went all over and tried to figure everything out and set up systems. You don't really have opportunities to write like that as much in journalism anymore, but we do. And then on the flip side, 
once you've made it through those early depressing years as a journalist, and then you get out and say you're a breakout star. How do you think about that in terms of your top talent and the unbundling we're seeing just across individual creators peeling off and going to do their own thing? Have you seen much of that within your business? How do you defend against that? We haven't. And I would never begrudge someone from going out and striking out on their own. I think where we do feel a lot of pain is when someone goes to an outlet and is covering the same beat, but is covering the beat in a way that's devoid of life. Or we've lost some people to Mansion and we've lost some of our most talented people to Mansion. But we always have a little bit of frustration that you were writing the most incredible gripping narratives. And now you're writing about a $75 million listing that is now $95 million. That hurts us a bit. But if someone wanted to come out and say, hey, I have this idea for covering real estate in a novel way, if we could not figure out a way to fold that into our own operation and make it worthwhile for them, absolutely would bless that and make that easy for them. But the talent that has worked has been a couple of different things in our business, at least for us. If you have and I never had this talent. I've done a few, but if you are a scoop hound, you will always be safe in journalism. You can go from ESPN's watch. He's always got a job, no matter what happens to anything. It just doesn't matter. So we have people who are just insanely gifted at breaking news. And that is a commodity that will never go out of style. You can go to Axios, Bloomberg, wherever you're going to be fine. That's one. You have people who are incredibly good at framing stories or very creative about thinking about the beat. That's another way to measure success as well. Someone who can be like, everyone's looking at the issue this way. Why don't I look at it this way? And that has led to some of our most incredible stories. We had done a deep dive into the Hasidic real estate population in Brooklyn. And yes, it was a real estate story, but it was really anthropology. You could take that and you could form a mini documentary about Brooklyn and the Hasidic community there based on our story. That's one way to do it. And then probably the third way is if you're a great writer. There's very few of those out there. But if you just have a way with words, you can figure out the rest. You really can. If you're able to tell a tale, boom. I mean, look at Matt Levine. Matt Levine is the most derivative writer. And I mean this with the greatest respect. Matt Levine is not original in his ideas. Matt Levine is original in his framing and the way he puts things together. If you have one of those three things, you're good. If you have more than one, you're invincible. 100%. Good example there with Levine. If you lose talent, what do you think the most common reason is? Is it compensation? Is it the challenge of the writing that you do and maybe having some easier options? Obviously, you're putting yourself in their shoes, which isn't always easy. But if you had to guess or from exit conversations, what is the lead thing that's causing that? It's sometimes maybe wanting to branch out of real estate and into a more generalist thing. That doesn't really happen too much for us. But a couple of people have wanted to go write about something else, and that's totally fine. One of the things we do struggle with is when people want to go to a bigger outlet or have a bigger legacy brand name behind them, as I mentioned. So a lot of people, we have, I believe, six people at the journal right now. We've got two people at Bloomberg. We've got some people in some other big outlets. And I think just having a name like Bloomberg or the Wall Street Journal in your resume for some people is very attractive. It is hard to convince people that that's not what it used to be. That doesn't matter as much anymore. I think having the authority and deep subject matter expertise is kind of all you need now. But that's a big reason we lose people. And then the third reason, to be completely candid, it's a tough place to work. The intensity in the newsroom and the real deal. We have a lot of alums now <laughs> like, oh yeah, I've got a part-time job basically. After going through the real deal and writing two magazine stories a month and writing six stories a week, and going on podcasts and doing videos and kind of being in the mix, it is quite an intense and for some people beyond demanding job. And I think that is the reason people have moved on. They don't want to necessarily keep up the pace. And I totally respect that. It's your life. You need to figure out what works for you. And if the reason you want to be somewhere else is you want to have a little bit of a slower pace, that's not going to happen at TRD. Awesome. Well, Hiten, this was a fantastic conversation. You got me even more excited or more into the story that is real estate. You have this tagline attached to your book. It's a blood sport rife with improbable tales and moguls who bent the skyline to their will. And I said to Dom before we started recording, what is better than that line? There is a story behind this, but it takes the proper words to tell that story. I think you do an excellent job. I think the publication does an excellent job. Thank you for joining us. I appreciate you guys very much. Thank you. 
I need Hiten's storytelling and real enthusiasm that he has, which made me feel into the content. That was my main takeaway from the research, but also just the conversation with him. Yeah, he really brings things to life. And we need better parties in our industry. I'm not sure the podcast industry can match the real estate industry when it comes to rooftop terraces and parties. That's debatable. I have been to what I would call tangential podcast events that had some pretty marquee people. They were maybe more in the advertising camp, but there were podcasts going on. This is your trip to the French Riviera. Yes. All right for some. Yes. I thought the early story about running just dummy ads was excellent. To his point, it's just the type of thing where you have to almost document those things because every business has some form of it where you're just figuring out as you go along. But that was just such an amazing anecdote. Is there downside? He said that if it didn't work out, it would look really bad. I don't think anyone remembers if it didn't work out. But if it does work out, which it did, then it's this is how scrappy we were in our early days. Yeah, well, you're not making any money. So I guess there's like a certain silliness to putting it out there without any money attached to it. And you could come up with reasons why maybe it would look bad or would be bad. But no, I hear your point. I think taking those types of shots and doing whatever you need to do to make it work, but also launching with only money for four issues is insane. Like there's a certain theme throughout that conversation. Only having four issues of a runway, you're going to have to figure it out. Hitten saying he needed to stay in the US. He's going to have to figure it out. When there's a fire under your ass, you react and compete differently than if there's not a fire under your ass. 100%. There was a real like nice scrappiness to the whole story of how they started. The near-death experiences, the billionaires trying to crush them along the way. Then you get the financial crisis, which is also a real estate crisis. The whole thing. And then here they are out the other end with the most valuable audience in the world and one of the top 800 websites in the US. I also thought his rule that you can't be snarky as a journalist, it's kind of in line with actually how we act, which is don't get personal, don't be snarky. And I liked hearing that that was at least a rule. I can almost use it now. But we have dealt with far less backlash from people or companies that we've covered But anytime we have, having that to lean back on, that it's mostly factual or one person's interpretation is a good thing. And I can only imagine what they have to deal with in that industry, which is historically private. These people historically do not have much press about them. And when they do, it's fluffy. So I can only imagine. It's hard when I put myself in that position. You know, whenever you've written anything that's mildly critical of anything, it's quite easy to write and you just run away with yourself. And three paragraphs later, you read it back. You're like, wow, I reached a crescendo at the end where I'm now not just being critical. I'm like full out going for it, feeling like I'm about to wage war. So it's a really hard line to toe, I think, especially when you've got that angle. Yeah. And honestly, once you do that, whether it's in a public forum or not a public forum, you have to start to question where you want to go with this. And that's why I think most battles are not worth fighting because people will get very personal. And you might have a rule of you're not going to get personal, but they might not have that rule. And God forbid you slip and you do get personal. There's all types of things which make you say it's not worth it. And then there's people like Taleb who's out there and it's worth it for him every time. He doesn't have a nice stock rule. (laughs) No, anti-fragile. Nothing can break him. That was interesting. I think journalistic standards in general, how they go about working on these subjects. I thought the business model one of the most interesting things that came out of it was they're clearly looking to diversify away from just advertising. I like that he framed it as constantly giving himself new challenges and keeping it fresh, which I thought was a good way of thinking about it and framing it. Yeah. I was listening to the Bloomberg Media Boss talk last week on Adam Ryan's podcast, and he made the point that all their growth has come from doing new things in media. That wasn't just at Bloomberg, it was some other ventures he was at. And just rhymes with this. And what he was talking about, you constantly have to experiment, try new things. And if they don't work, kill them quickly. But it definitely seems to be a recurring theme in this show. And then the contrast to what Sean Griffey was saying in terms of entering new markets, definitely a different strategy there. So it just shows you the different segments of media and how it differentiates itself. Yeah, there's no one right way. There was also a really interesting discussion we just had very quickly off air at the very end, where he brought it up and just said, there's a point where I couldn't even read fiction because everything I was tying back to what I was doing day to day, and we were very much in agreement. It's kind of interesting 
we talk about this a lot where when you're in the media business or in content generally it kind of kills your enjoyment of other forms of content because it's really hard to break the chain between when you read something either cool or rubbish being like we either can't do that or we have to do it this way or oh that actually ties into something that i read somewhere else and sometimes those connections can be very useful but equally i'm really struggling at the moment to read any kind of books packy told me to go and read the three body problem packy i'm struggling with the book i'm blaming my job rather than the book itself and maybe you can keep it to one niche like investing media but god forbid you go start a show called making media about all types of media and then you really can't watch anything or tune into anything without getting some idea in your head or thinking about how this applies to your own business it really does overpower you in every facet of life but he found a way to step and work on a different project and rejuvenated him and it was an excellent conversation right after we stopped recording there. Yeah, I'm sure there's thousands of people sympathizing with us right now about how tough our jobs are. Exactly. Anything else that stood out? I think they've got a very clear identity. And he was talking about those couple of points in time where someone said something, oh, I either don't want to be in the real deal for this reason, or oh, this feels like the real deal. I want that for Colossus. I think we have at the margins a branding issue. And we touched on it a little bit with him at the very end. We need to be a bit more specific about who we're for or what we are. We'll kind of feel what we are, but none of us can really verbalize it in a succinct way. And I think if we went to a party and someone was like, oh, that's like a Colossus thing, that would be a very cool moment. And I can see how that would happen. And I think we need to think through. And this, I guess, goes back to Eric Newton's point on podcasting broadly, but this kind of applies to the business more specifically of you need to really focus down into a specific thing. And that might be to the detriment of other. To make this a bit more clear, we often talk about we make business and investing podcasts. There's a very big overlap between business and investing, very big overlap between investors and operators. But I think it makes it feel clumsy when you have to repeat both of those two things. And it would be clearer if you went out and said, we are here to make you a better investor, or we are here to help you build your business. Something like that, which then feels a bit more tangible as a brand. So I felt a little bit jealous about that. I think it's fair at the Colossus level. I think each of the individual podcasts, maybe sides of this podcast, actually do have those identities. It's hard for me to say that invest like the best doesn't represent that for certain hedge fund managers. And based on who we have relationships with and who's coming through the doors, I think that certainly is the case in terms of it representing something to them. And I think for our other shows that exists as well, I think at the Colossus level, that's a little bit different and understandably so. I think that's fair. Anything else from your side? I enjoyed that one. I wanted to tap into journalism a bit more and... I was originally planning to go with that angle. But then the more I started to pay attention to the real estate angle to all of this and real estate media, I always talk about learning so much from the NFL about learning from real estate media. I mean, again, it's the description of the stories. And they're definitely different than what you have in traditional investors. But I can shape some of these activism stories or shareholder battles where you have these major titans arguing against one another. Now, it's already out there in the public a bit more. But I think you could spin the stories in a more creative way. And that's what they're doing. And that's what they do in their specific niche. And I think there's something to aspire to there because there's so much of a knock-on effect that flows down into personal real estate, residential real estate. And someone might squint and say, well, it's different. You have institutional investing and then everything's kind of different from there. But it's not really that different. And I think you saw with what happened over the past five years and all this talk over democratization of investing in different things, there are storylines that can be played from both sides of it. And there's just a lot of opportunity there. It's such a big market, but everyone understands it. I think that's always been the challenge with investing. Not everyone understands investing, but everyone has some appreciation of real estate because they've lived in the home. It's more intrinsic to you. So stories about real estate just tend to be slightly more engaging and interesting. And then when you can add some of the power players, it really reminded me of Robert Caro. I haven't actually read any of his main books, but I read the book that he wrote describing how he wrote his books. One day I'll get into the big books, but from what I understand of what he's written about power and how that operates in these big cities, particularly New York, a lot of it was just echoing the books that I haven't read, but I've heard about. It reminds me of Homer. I haven't read any of his books, but it reminds me of him. That guy. You haven't read the Iliad. Unbelievable. Just the Odyssey. I think your point on it being approachable is certainly the case. But 
I think that if you can make investing more approachable in terms of the storylines, I don't think it's that high of a hurdle. So something interesting there. That's probably true. I guess we have to finish with what your favorite real estate reality show is. I'm going to say season one of Selling Sunset. After that, it just degenerated into you never got to see any houses. But season one had me gripped throughout. I think the early million dollar listings in New York were interesting. As with any of these reality shows, eventually it shifts from the real estate to the people on the real estate. And it's quite impressive what these people have done and the careers that they've turned out of it. It's kind of like, where are the customers' yachts type thing (laughs) on the other side of the equation? But fair question. Yeah, we'll think about that some more. Well, you can. Awesome. Well, Dom, it was another great episode. We got some busy weeks of recording ahead. Thank you for joining us on Making Media. Yeah, see you soon.